Chapter 11, Part 1 of The Naval Officer, or Scenes in the Life and Adventures of Frank Mildmay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roxanne Saxton. The Naval Officer, or Scenes in the Life and Adventures of Frank Mildmay, by Captain Frederick Marriott. Chapter 11, Part 1 Our boat has one sail, and the helmsman is pale. A bold pilot, I trow, who should follow us now, shouted he. As he spoke, bolts of death specked their path o'er the sea. And fearst thou, and fearst thou, and seest thou, and hearst thou? And drive we not free o'er the terrible sea, I and thou? Shelley the reader may think i was over fastidious when i inform him that i cannot describe the disgust i felt at the licentious impurity of manners which i found in the midshipman's berth for although my connection with eugenia was not sanctioned by religion or morality it was in other respects pure disinterested and if i may use the expression patriarchal since it was unsullied by inconstancy gross language or drunkenness vicious i was and i own it to my shame but at least my vice was refined by Eugenia, who had no fault but one. As soon as I had settled myself in my new abode with all the comfort that circumstances would permit, I wrote a long letter to Eugenia, in which I gave an exact account of all that had passed since our separation. I begged her to come down to Portsmouth and see me, told her to go to the Star and Garter as the house nearest the waterside, and consequently where I should be the soonest out of sight after I had landed. Her answer informed me that she should be there on the following day. The only difficulty now was to get on shore. No eloquence of mine, I was sure, would induce the first lieutenant to relax his Cerberus-like guard over me. I tried the experiment, however, and begged very hard to be allowed to go on shore to procure certain articles absolutely necessary to my comfort. "'No, no,' said Mr. Talbot. "'I'm too old a hand to be caught that way.' I have my orders, and I would not let my father go on shore if the captain ordered me to keep him on board, and I tell you in perfect good humor that out of this ship you do not go unless you swim on shore, and that I do not think you will attempt. Here, continued he, to prove to you there is no ill will on my part, here's the captain's note. It was short, sweet, and complimentary as it related to myself, and was as follows. Keep that damned young scamp Mildmay on board. Will you allow me then, said I, folding up the note and returning it to him without any comment, will you allow me to go on shore under the charge of the sergeant of marines? That, said he, would be just as much an infringement of my orders as letting you go by yourself. You cannot go on shore, sir. These last words he uttered in a very peremptory manner and quitting the deck left me to my own reflections and my own resources. Intercourse by letter between Eugenia and myself was perfectly easy, but that was not all I wanted. I had promised to meet her at nine o'clock in the evening. It was now sunset. The boats were all hoisted up. No shore boat was near, and there was no mode of conveyance but a la neige, which Mr. Tablet himself had suggested, only as proving its utter impracticability, but he did not know me half so well at the time as he did afterwards. The ship lay two miles from the shore. The wind was from the southwest, and the tide moving to the eastward. 
so that, with wind and tide both in my favor, I calculated on fetching South Sea Castle. After dark I took my station in the four channels. It was the 20th of March and very cold. I undressed myself, made all my clothes up into a very tight bundle, and fastened them on my hat, which retained its proper position. Then, lowering myself very gently into the water, like another Leander I struck out to gain the arms of my hero. Before I had got twenty yards from the ship I was perceived by the sentinel, who, naturally supposing I was a pressed man endeavouring to escape, hailed me to come back. Not being obeyed, the officer of the watch ordered him to fire at me. A ball whizzed over my head and struck the water between my hands. A dozen more followed, all of them tolerably well directed. But I struck out, and the friendly shades of night and increasing distance from the ship soon protected me. A waterman, seeing the flashes and hearing the reports of the muskets, concluded that he might chance to pick up a fare. He pulled towards me. I hailed him, and he took me in before I had got half a quarter of a mile from the ship. "'I doubt whether you ever would have fetched ashore on that tack, my lad,' said the old man. "'You left your ship two hours too soon. You would have met the ebb tide running strong out of the harbour, and the first thing you would have made, if you could have kept your head up above water, would have been the oars.' While the old man was pulling and talking, I was shivering and dressing, and made no reply, but begged him to put me on shore on the first part of South Sea Beach he could land at, which he did. I gave him a guinea and ran, without stopping, into the garrison and down Point Street to the Star and Garter, where I was received by Eugenia, who, with great presence of mind, called me her dear, dear husband in the hearing of the people of the house. My wet clothes attracted her notice. I told her what I had done to obtain an interview with her. She shuddered with horror. My teeth chattered with cold. A good fire, a hot and not very weak glass of brandy and water, together with her tears, smiles, and caresses, soon restored me. The reader will, no doubt, here recall to mind the less agreeable remedy applied to me when I ducked the usher, and one recommended also by myself in similar cases, as having experienced its good effects. How much more I deserved it on this occasion than the former one need not be mentioned. So sweet was this stolen interview that I vowed I was ready to encounter the same danger on the succeeding night. Our conversation turned on our future prospects, and as our time was short we had much to say. Frank, said the poor girl, before we meet again I shall probably be a mother, and this hope alone alleviates the agony of separation. If I have not you... I shall at least be blessed with your image. Heaven grant that it may be a boy to follow the steps of his father, and not a girl to be as wretched as her mother. You, my dear Frank, are going on distant and dangerous service, dangers increased tenfold by the natural ardor of your mind. We may never meet again, or, if we do, the period will be far distant. I ever have been and ever will be constant to you till death but I neither expect nor will allow the same declaration on your part. Other scenes, new faces, youthful passions will combine to drive me for a time from your thoughts, and when you shall have attained maturer years and a rank in the navy equal to your merits and your connections, you will marry in your own sphere of society. All these things I have made up my mind to as events that must take place. Your person I know I cannot have, but do not, do not discard me from your mind. 
I shall never be jealous as long as I know you are happy and still love your unfortunate Eugenia. Your child shall be no burden to you until it shall have attained an age at which it may be put out in the world. Then I know you will not desert it for the sake of its mother. Dear Frank, my heart is broken, but you are not to blame. And if you were, I would die imploring blessings on your head. Here she wept bitterly. I tried every means in my power to comfort and encourage this fascinating and extraordinary girl. I forgot neither vows nor promises, which, at the time, I fully intended to perform. I promised her a speedy, and I trusted a happy meeting. God's will be done, said she, come what will. And now, my dearest Frank, farewell. Never again endanger your life and character for me as you did last night. I have been blessed in your society, and even with the prospect of misery before me cannot regret the past. I tenderly embraced her, and jumped into a wherry at point, and desired the waterman to take me on board the boat at Spithead. The first lieutenant was on deck when I came up the side. I presume it was you whom we fired at last night, said he, smiling. It was, sir, said I. Absolute necessity compelled me to go on shore, or I should not have taken such an extraordinary mode of conveyance. Oh, with all my heart, said the officer. Had you told me you intended to have swum on shore, I should not have prevented you. I took you for one of the pressed men and directed the marines to fire at you. The pressed men are extremely obliged to you, thought I. Did you not find it devilish cold, continued the lieutenant, in a strain of good humor, which I encouraged by my manner of answering? Indeed I did, sir, said I. And the jollies fired tolerably well, did they? They did, sir. Would they had had a better mark. I understand you, said the lieutenant, but as you have not served your time, the vacancy would be of no use to you. I must report the affair to the captain, though I do not think he'll take any notice of it. He is too fond of enterprise himself to check it in others. Besides, a lady is always a justifiable object, but we hope soon to show you some higher game. The captain came on board shortly after, and took no notice of my having been absent without leave, he made some remark as he glanced his eye at me, which I afterwards learned was in my favor. In a few days we sailed, and arrived in a few more in Basque Roads. The British fleet was at anchor outside the French ships, moored in a line off the Isle Dex. The ship I belonged to had an active part in the work going on, and most of us saw more than we chose to speak of. But, as much ill blood was made on that occasion, and one or two very unpleasant courts-martial took place, I shall endeavor to confine myself to my own personal narrative, avoiding anything that may give offense to the parties concerned. Some days were passed in preparing the fire-ships, and, on the night of the 11th April, 1809, everything being prepared for the attempt to destroy the enemy's squadron, we began the attack. A more daring one was never made, and if it partly failed of success, no fault could be imputed to those who conducted the enterprise. They did all that man could do. The night was very dark, and it blew a strong breeze directly in upon the Eolidex and the enemy's fleet. Two of our frigates had been previously placed so as to serve as beacons to direct the course of the fire-ships. They each displayed a clear and brilliant light. The fire-ships were directed to pass between these, after which their course up to the boom which guarded the anchorage was clear and not easily to be mistaken. 
I solicited and obtained permission to go on board one of the explosion vessels that were to precede the fire ships. They were filled with layers of shells and powder heaped one upon another. The quantity on board each vessel was enormous. Another officer, three seamen, and myself were all that were on board of her. We had a four-oared gig, a small, narrow thing, nicknamed by the sailors a coffin to make our escape in. Being quite prepared, we started. It was a fearful moment. The wind freshened and whistled through our rigging, and the night was so dark we could not see our bowsprit. We had only our foresail set, but with a strong flood tide and a fair wind, with plenty of it, we passed between the advanced frigates like an arrow. It seemed to me like entering the gates of hell. As we flew rapidly along and our own ships disappeared in the intense darkness, I thought of Dante's inscription over the portals. You who enter here, leave hope behind. Our orders were to lay the vessel on the boom which the French had moored to the outer anchors of their ships of the line. In a few minutes after passing the frigates, we were close to it. Our boat was towing astern with the three men in it, one to hold the rope, ready to let go, one to steer, and one to bail the water out, which, from our rapid motion, would otherwise have swamped her. The officer who accompanied me steered the vessel, and I held the match in my hand. We came upon the boom with a horrid crash. He put the helm down and laid her broadside to it. The force of the tide acting on the hull and the wind upon the foresail made her heel gunwale too, and it was with difficulty I could keep my legs. At this moment the boat was very near being swamped alongside. They had shifted her astern, and there the tide had almost lifted her over the boom. By great exertion they got her clear and lay upon their oars. The tide and the wind formed a bubbling short sea which almost buried her. My companion then got into the boat, desiring me to light the port fire and follow. If ever I felt the sensation of fear, it was after I had lighted this port fire, which was connected with the train. Until I was fairly in the boat and out of the reach of the explosion, which was inevitable and might be instantaneous, the sensation was horrid. I was standing on a mine. Any fault in the port fire, which sometimes will happen, any trifling quantity of gunpowder lying in the interstices of the deck would have exploded the whole in a moment. Had my hand trembled, which I am proud to say it did not, the same might have occurred. Only one minute and a half of port fire was allowed. I had, therefore, no time to lose. The moment I had lit it, I laid it down very gently, and then jumped into the gig with a nimbleness suitable to the occasion. We were off in a moment. I pulled the stroke oar, and never plied with more zeal in all my life. We were not two hundred yards from her when she exploded. End of chapter 11, part 1 Recording by Roxanne Saxton